following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Episode 748 of I Doubt It. I am your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today by the lovely, the talented, and as always, the scholarly, Brittany Page. Well, we have a return guest. He was on the show two times in 2017, the first time in March and the second time in September 2017, both times to talk about Donald Trump (laughs) and the mental health of Donald Trump. And Dr. Alan Francis had some differing views on Donald Trump's mental health than you, Jesse, but also, I think, the general population of Democrats in America. Well... And Dr. Alan Francis himself, as you will see in this interview specifically, is definitely on the left. Yeah, most certainly. Yes. Um, It's it's kind of shitty to to put my lofty and storied qualifications Mm. against those meager and really slight qualifications of Dr. Alan Francis, who Mm -hmm. helped... Right, the DSM four. <laughs> well, he, well, he. So the DSM, for those who don't know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That is the book that um, anyone who is who diagnoses people with mental disorders uses that manual to do the diagnosis. Right. Um, they have to fit certain criteria. Right. It, it's the I don't want to say Bible, but it's certainly. It's the guidebook by which anybody who gets diagnosed with a psychological disorder or a mental disorder, that's what they use. Right. So he chaired the DSM-4 task force, and he was a member of the task force that prepared the DSM-3 and wrote the final version of the personality disorders in the section in the DSM-3. Super, super qualified. I mean... On the on the scale of awesomeness of the pre- previous guests, and this isn't to shit on any previous guests, Alan Francis is right up there. Yeah, I mean he's it's it's a uh, I'm I'm giddy. It's like a big deal that we get him on the show as often as we do. Right. Well, and he is one of my heroes, and uh, has been for a long time. Before I went to grad school, he was one of my heroes. I appreciate his views on human behavior and trying to protect against the ever-expanding role of psychiatry, trying to kind of pathologize normal experiences and normal human behaviors. Uh, We get into that. Now, some people mistake Dr. Alan Francis's views because he is so cautious when it comes to um, labeling and abusing psychiatric disorders, he's not against diagnosis. He's not one of those people that doesn't use psychiatric diagnoses. Um, He values and believes that psychiatric diagnoses are very important for treating people. It's just he doesn't want it to be abused. And he's kind of iconoclastic in the field where he challenges the institutions, he challenges people in the field, and he, like you said, is kind of a leading um, figure. Yeah, I mean, to put it in perspective to to layman like me, it's like every kid, every, you know, six-year-old who's hyperactive, it doesn't have ADHD. It's like, he's a kid. They're... They're hard to wrangle. It doesn't mean there's something uh, medically wrong, mentally wrong, diag- diagnosably mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. It just they're being a kid, right? And overdiagnosis isn't. I mean, is one of his uh, um, pillars of his the, the problems he has in modern 
uh, mental health, don't you think? Yeah. And he's also the former chair of the Duke Department of Psychiatry as well. So he's written countless books, countless articles. His Twitter account is necessary in your life at Alan Francis MD. <laughs> and like I said, he's one of my heroes in grad school um, when I was taking the class where we learned the DSM. We learned how to diagnose. We um, went through the entire thing. I Some some people would jokingly call me Alan because I would bring him up and his views on things. Yeah, yeah. And I had to present on either a chapter or a disorder. I don't remember now. Um, and I had actually messaged him and gotten his feedback on the chapter or the, the disorder that I had to present so I could bring in some of his insight as well. And he readily responded to me. He's always been super gracious with his time. He believes it's important to speak out. And I think everyone is really going to enjoy this. If you want to hear him talk about Trump, you're going to be let down because that doesn't happen a lot in this. This is more about his history and um, how he came to be who he is. If you want to hear him talk about Trump, you're going to want to go into the archives on the website. Yeah, just go to dollamore.com and search Alan Francis, A-L-L-E-N-F-R-A-N-C-E-S. Yep. Alan Francis in uh, wherever you search on the website. Right. And it'll it'll direct you. It'll pull up the episodes. You can listen to both of them. Yep. Uh, it's a good time. This one wasn't quite as fun for me because he doesn't shit on me as much as he has in the past. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you guys are growing in your relationship. That's right. We're, we're getting closer. Yeah. So anyway, we we really wanted to, 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 to bring this to you guys. Uh, we hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And without further... Dicking around, right to the interview. Dr. Alan Francis, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time today. Oh, it's always my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so the last, you, you've been on twice already, and the last two times that you, we had you on, we talked almost exclusively about <laughs> the former president, then current president, Donald Trump. We were talking about your book, Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the uh, age of Trump. And before we get to some other stuff that's unrelated to that, thankfully, was was there any surprises? I mean, in the wake of the, the January 6th insurrection and the violence that took place there and the lead up to all of that, did were there any surprises for you? Well, there, there's never been any surprise about Trump. He may be the most transparent person in, in the uh, universe, his psychology is so shallow, you don't have to be a, a psychiatrist to figure it out. <laughs> and when I wrote the book about four years ago, we predicted almost everything that, that's happened um, in terms of his behavior. No surprises there. The great surprise is that it worked as well as it's worked. That um, What I predicted was that his outrageous behavior would gradually start weaning away supporters and that um, he would either do some sort of military takeover, uh, sort of like what January 6th turned out to, to, almost turned out to be, that he would either you know, have a, create a, a kind of police state to um, take over the government, or that his support would just disappear and evaporate. What I never imagined, and it shows my naivete about the American public, and, and about the cynicism of the um, Fox News and of the uh, Republican Party, I never imagined that Trump could hold the allegiance of um, you know, the majority of Republicans mm. after the utter incompetence in, in facing COVID, all the outrageous things he did in regard to the climate, um, his, his global inability to govern, that um, a, a substantial majority of the Republican Party still believes that he was cheated out of the election and is willing to uh, run over the cliff like lemmings. Uh, following um, the utter nonsense. And I think the other thing that I, 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 I failed to predict and is really terrifying is the loss of any grounding in truth, that we have a country now where um, the strangest of opinions, the QAnon stuff and worse, the strangest of opinions are taken as, as fact. The, could we have a clearer, a clearer challenge to our country as a whole than the COVID pandemic? And in the book, I said that we needed a common enemy to come together as a country. We flunked that test. We have two common enemies that yeah. threaten us, the, both the COVID pandemic and, and climate crisis. 
And instead of coming together as a country and coming together as a species, we're, we're flunking the test badly. We're dividing in a way that's self-destructive, that so many people could believe that the, um, the vaccine is dangerous and the virus is something tolerable and safe. It, it, it's really the, the Trump was always a, a kind of nutty, divisive person who would do and say the most outrageous things. That was absolutely predictable. That so many people would believe him is shocking, very, very sad, and a terrible predictor for the future of humanity. I <laughs> I am a man who talks for a living, and, uh, and I think about this stuff a lot, and I don't think I could have put it more succinctly than that. I mean, that's... Especially I, at 8 in the morning. I didn't even slightly disagree with anything that you said. You, you nailed it, so... Um, Wow. <laughs> well, and that's why I really wanted to have you back on, Dr. Francis, because we talked a lot about Trump last time and your Twitter is filled with political activism. I mean, I saw some tweets where you were taking on Joel Austin. You're going after the, the Sacklers. Uh, you're going after COVID idiots, which is the hashtag you've been using. So um, there's a lot of political activism on your Twitter, which I think we really appreciate. But we want to get into a little bit about kind of what led you into this field, what led you into your activism of preventing the medicalization of normal human behavior. And I was revisiting one of your other books, not about Trump, uh, Saving Normal. And I had the thought, let's have him on. So um, Dr. Francis, what would you say led you to the field of psychiatry? Oh, so going back uh, 55 years? Yep. Um, <laughs> my father told me that he had worked in the pharmacy in the Depression, and he noticed that while no one else had jobs, doctors always had jobs. He also noticed that they weren't very smart. And he said, Alan, <laughs> wow. you're, you're, not, you're, not very, you're not smart enough to be a college professor, which is what I wanted to do but you are smart enough to be a doctor. So it's a safe job. You'll never lose your job. You'll always make it. So I went into medicine partly for the um, traditional reasons that the family wanted me to, but I loved psychiatry. And um, it, it, it seemed then, and, and, and it's still true now, though maybe less so, it seemed to combine the ability to, to study the humanities, literature, and, uh, and understand people in a, in a, in a way that, Normally, you can't. You get to know people in psychiatry better than you do in almost any other um, aspect of life, even your family. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, to be abreast of the latest, most exciting scientific discoveries that the brain has been um, explored. We have windows into the brain now that no one could have imagined before 1970s. Right. So the, the combination of being able to help people, being able to understand them, understand myself, read books I loved and feel not guilty about it because it was almost like part of work to, to read novels and to, to keep up with science. That, that was, um, I, I'm very grateful for my father pointing out my limitations because it, <laughs> it, it steered me into a field where um, it, it's been, it's been wonderful to be helpful and also to be helped along the way by the, um, the opportunities offered. Oh, to be uh, you and your father. I, I My limitations led me to the United States Marine Corps. <laughs> if only I'd been in the situation where my limitations led me to medical school. <laughs> I, think, I think you're doing fine. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Do you, have, do you have a specific moment that you remember that kind of awakened your passion for advocating on behalf of this saving normal uh, phrase that you've created and uh, preventing the medicalization of normal human behavior? Yeah, it started in my residency. We used to keep people in the hospital for a year and give them way too much medicine mm. and overdiagnose them. And um, I'm still in touch with some of the patients I treated in, in the uh, late 60s. Oh, wow. And I feel great regret for having done that to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so beginning uh, shortly after my residency, I began trying to understand the field in a very different way where we would do what's needed for people who really needed help, but we wouldn't overtreat people. We wouldn't overdiagnose them. I think I wrote a paper in 1981, which is now, wow, 40 years ago. Um, called No Treatment is the Treatment of Choice, that uh, for many people, not getting treatment was a better deal for them than being treated. The treatment could make them worse. Hmm. And when I took over the um, role as task force leader for DSM-4, 
the psychiatric diagnostic system in, in the mid 80s, I saw as one of my goals to try to contain the expansion of psychiatric diagnosis, the fear that the pool of normal people was shrinking into a puddle, that everyone was going to be diagnosed with a mental disorder, that rates of uh, medication use were skyrocketing, are skyrocketing. And I can't say I've been much of a success because even as we speak, um, something like 25% of the population each year gets a psychiatric diagnosis and 20% of the population is on psychiatric medication with wild excessive use of, of um, especially the, the benzodiazepines, the anti-anxiety drugs, of the antidepressants, of stimulants in kids. The medication is being used like candy. Doctors see a patient for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. barely know them. And 80% of the psychiatric drugs are prescribed by GPs who barely know their patients, don't have much training in psychiatry. Right. Easy way to get a patient out of the office is to write a script. And so we were terribly overdiagnosing and, and uh, overtreating people who are mildly ill or worried well, who would do better with time and psychotherapy or psychotherapy. And at the same time, this is the worst place. America is the worst place in the world to have a serious mental illness. Mm-hmm. We have 350,000 mentally ill people in prisons. Uh, we have 250,000 mentally ill people homeless. Uh, part of why cops are so trigger happy is that they're first responders and they may be going out to see someone who's less predictable because they have a mental illness and they're scared and yeah. Yeah. No excuse for what they do, you know, the, the uh, excessive shooting, but it's part of the background. Uh, cops should not be first responders. The seriously ill in this country died 20 years early because they largely because they get terrible medical care. We had a very good system of community psychiatry in the United States that was dismantled by the Reagan administration in the 1980s. And it's a a real scandal that we have this um, horrible criminalization of mental illness, uh, filling the jails, filling the streets with homeless people. And yet the Biden infrastructure plan, which is a wonderful thing in every other way, doesn't even mention building, rebuilding a mental health infrastructure mm-hmm. that the neglect of the severely ill, this is a public responsibility, helping the severely ill get treatment in the community and decent housing. It's a public responsibility in our private for-profit system of health care. The se- severely ill are left uh, to their own devices, very little access to treatment, very little access to housing. And the result is we're spending fortunes on prisons where they're inappropriately housed, they spend a very long time, they wind up in solitary confinement, smearing crap all over their cells because it drives them crazier. There's a much better way of doing this. Community psychiatry works. It works in the rest of the world. So it's a scandal that we have the very worst psychiatry for the severely ill in the world because so many people wind up in prison or homeless. At the same time, we're way over-treating people who don't need it. That paradox is haunting. Do you you find... um... More blame on the American system, wherein, like, like for, uh, to blame the expansion of diagnosis, um, like, you can't bill insurance unless you have a diagnosis, so something has to get ginned up or, or um, exaggerated that might not be an actual diagnosis. Is, you think that's part of the problem, or is that most of the problem? It, it's, it's a very big part of the problem that insurance companies would be smarter. It'd be cost effective to let doctors know their patients to do six evaluation visits, not have to make a diagnosis after one visit. When the doc makes the diagnosis after 10 minutes that the person has depression and needs medication, that means they may get very long-term treatment that we may be paying for their treatment, usually unnecessary and often harmful for, for years and years. If doctors got to know their patients better, they wouldn't make so many diagnoses. The most symptoms that docs see get better within a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So people come to their doctor, their GP usually, at the worst day of their life and complain of symptoms. If you wait, watch, advise, normalize, and sometimes offer psychotherapy, the symptoms are most likely to get better in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. If you prescribe medication, the person will also get better in a couple of weeks but it'll be mostly placebo and time effect. And then what happens is that the person thinks it was the medication that did it and stays on the medication for years and years and years, often with terrible side effects and, um, you know, unnecessary stigma, lessened uh, sense of possibility and uh, promise that we need a system where 
doctors get to know their patients before jumping at a prescription. But it's not just the insurance companies. A very big part of this had been the uh, drug companies with constant advertisements on TV and in magazines about uh, ask your doctor if you have any sort of problem at all. It's a chemical imbalance that needs a, a chemical solution. The drug companies have been very much involved in, in stimulating overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And also the diagnostic system itself is far too loose in the definitions. So we need we should be focusing much more on the people who desperately need psychiatric treatment and medication, um, making sure that they get what they need so they don't wind up in jail or homeless. At the same time, we, we should be allowing doctors to know their patients well enough not to jump to prescriptions at, at a drop of the hat. And we shouldn't be ever listening to the drug companies, that everything the drug companies ever say is a lie. And anyone who ever listens to a commercial is being sucked in because the um, their interest is certainly not in helping patients. Their interest is in making profits. Is it easy to see for you, Jesse, now why Dr. Francis is one of my heroes and why I, why I was called Alan in my graduate class? Yeah, well... <laughs> I, there's a lot. Well, there's a lot of parallels. Parallels. You've you've um, talked about some of these same concerns in your time working in you know a locked psychiatric hospital, mm-hmm. or even the work you do now as mm-hmm. a therapist. It's mm-hmm. your. I could I could sense the the frustration. Well, and one of my favorite moments of the book is in the beginning of Saving Normal when you describe kind of socializing with people before the creation of the DSM-5 and how people were so excited about these new diagnoses and how as you kept bumping into people, you were like collecting a new diagnosis for yourself based on just normal things that you had experienced in your life, like the grief that you described um, or your struggles to maintain attention. And I know one of your fears with the DSM-5 was that it was going to push psychiatric diagnosis in the wrong direction and it was going to make medication misuse worse. You had a lot of concerns. Do you feel like the effect of the DSM-5 was worse than you predicted or about the same as you predicted? What would you say about your predictions about the effect of the DSM-5 on the field? I think it's about the same, that we've had a continuing increase. The the best way you can judge this is drug sales. Um, The second best way is rates reported in studies of different disorders. And in terms of drug sales, the the growth uh, stopped being exponential about uh, 15 years ago when um, the drug companies lost patent rights to the most lucrative products. And they, what they did was take the money out of research and development in psychiatry and put it into other things, especially cancer. They, they decided they sort of, um, the orange had been uh, sucked dry. They'd gotten as much money as they possibly could from developing Me Too drugs that were no more effective than their predecessors, advertising them like crazy, charging ridiculous prices for them. And they gave, pretty much the drug companies gave up on psychiatry. So the, the, the biggest increase in the use of medication and in overdiagnosis happened in, in the years up until about 2005. But even without the drug companies flogging the medicine, we still have tremendous overuse. The, the worst case here is benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. uh, Xanax being the, uh, the prime culprit. Uh, 4% of our population takes a benzodiazepine. 8% wow. of the elderly do. Now get this, these medicines are good for almost nothing in psychiatry. There's almost no purpose. It's like pretty much like taking a drink. Mm -hmm. They're very addictive. Uh, The the, um, amount of medicine you have to take to help with panic disorder is almost the same as an addicting dose. So once people start on benzodiazepines, there's a very good chance they're going to become addicted to them. And it's almost impossible to stop them because as you try to taper down, you start getting much worse symptoms than you had before when you began taking them. Right. Not a relapse, but withdrawal. It's like delirium tremens. It's mm-hmm. like withdrawing from alcohol. So the, uh, and the dangers of re- withdrawal are considerable, particularly seizures. The 8% of elders getting this are particularly striking and, and heartbreaking because these medicines cause memory loss, confusion, and, and most especially they, they facilitate falls. And falling is the worst thing you can do as you're elderly. Mm-hmm. That that's, the path to death is falling. That um, About half the people die, elderly die, six months after having a fall. So you, the last medicine in the world you'd want to be giving the elderly is a benzodiazepine. 8% of them are getting it. 
Similarly, similarly, in nursing homes, antipsychotics are given like crazy. And the big reason for that is that the nursing homes are understaffed. So if someone wants to go to the bathroom and there's no staff member, they get real agitated. They start screaming. That upsets the uh, whole rhythm of the nursing home, understaffed nursing home. So what they do is put the person in a diaper and give them an antipsychotic. It shortens life expectancy. It turns people into zombies. It's happening not because they need an antipsychotic. It's happening because the system is understaffed. One last example. We, we know that we're terrifically over-treating um, and over-diagnosing attention deficit disorder in kids. There have been about 10 studies in different countries, millions and millions of kids. And the best predictor of getting a diagnosis of ADHD and being medicated for it is your birthday, the kid's birthday. The youngest kid in the class is almost twice as likely as the oldest kid in the class to be diagnosed as having a mental disorder attention deficit. In fact, they're just the most immature kid in a chaotic classroom. Hmm. And instead of treating the classroom, just as instead of treating the nursing home by getting more staff, instead of treating the classrooms by having fewer kids in the class, we're, we're picking out the kids who are most disrupted by it because they're young. We're turning immaturity into a mental disorder and treating it with pills. So it, it's very disheartening that um, th- this whole system is so difficult that no one person, certainly not me, no one person is able to stop the train rolling. And unless we give doctors more time to be with patients, unless we educate them to the power of time and placebo effect and people getting better from their emotional symptoms, unless we educate patients not to expect always to have quick relief, that waiting a couple of weeks for most problems in life makes them very different. Unless we do lots of things, we're going to continue to over-medicate the, the worried well and very mildly ill and under-medicate, under-treat the people who desperately need it. What do you feel like has been the the hardest thing about protesting the expanding boundaries of psychiatry and overdiagnosis and overtreatment for you? Well, I can't say any of it has been hard. I think that the blowback I get, um, I get a lot of blowback because I, I strongly defend the use of medication for the severely ill, and I, I'm strongly on the side of ECT for severe depression and catatonia. And the people who are systematically against, they're a group of of patients who've had bad experiences with psychiatry. And they're perfectly right to be angry about the fact that they either didn't respond to medication or maybe even got worse because there was too much medication. Right. They make the assumption, this is the anti-psychiatry movement amongst patients, they make the assumption that everyone who takes medicine is in their same boat. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that we have as much responsibility to reduce overtreatment in people who don't need it as to guarantee adequate treatment for people who desperately do. And that when they say, you know, all psychiatry is corrupt and no one should be on medicine, no one should ever get ECT, they're depriving people, unwittingly depriving people who are different than them, have different needs, and desperately do need the treatment. So I get a fair amount of blowback from them. I get a little bit of blowback from um, the uh, biological reductionists who think that everything in psychiatry is uh, due to uh, a brain network problem and don't realize that um, so much of what causes symptoms is a complex interplay between biology, psychology, and the social context. That anyone who thinks there's a simple answer to mental disorder is always wrong. And so I get some blowback from people who complain because I, 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 what I say is that although we've done billions of dollars of brain research in the last 40 years, and it's fascinating, it's, it's a really incredible intellectual adventure, not one patient has been helped by it. That all of the research that's being funded by NIMH, almost all of the research is now brain research. Nothing to do with psychotherapy, nothing to do with um, social systems, how to deliver services. And we were ignoring when we're, we took our eye off the ball. We got so fascinated with the cool research that could be done with fancy toys, genetic <laughs> research and, and imaging research, that we lost track of the fact that we have 600,000 people in jail or homeless. No one's really doing research and uh, funding demonstration programs. I, I was on an NIMH committee in the early 80s that funded DBT, the Treatment for Borderline Personality Disorder, and 
suicidal behavior and funded CBT, which has become the major treatment for most psychiatric disorders. We, we provided uh, a small amount of funding uh, over the course of several years, uh, several million dollars for research in both of these areas. Millions of people have been helped by that research, by research into psychotherapy. The billions of dollars, orders of magnitude, greater investments in brain research have yielded no benefit. So uh, I get some blowback from people who are wedded to, um, we're going to find the secret to mental disorders if only we do these studies in the next decade. I have a strong feeling that there's no low-hanging fruit in explaining and treating mental disorders. It's not rocket science to do a good job. We have the tools already to provide good care. We're not going to get additional breakthrough. Um, I think if it were easy to do, if it was easy to understand mental disorder and easy to come up with a biological model and new medication treatments, it would have happened. It didn't. It won't. And so I think we, the people who are very wedded to this ever-advancing research somehow uh, missed the point that we first need to do well what we can do now and take care of the people now because there's not likely to be any sudden um, blast of new wisdom in the next uh, coming years. Some blowback comes from um, people who say everything's trauma and the, the brain's not involved in mental disorder. They're reductionist on the other side. Simple explanations that see all of mental disorder due to the, the malfunctioning of the brain or to childhood trauma. These never work because it's always some combination of the biological, the psychological, and the social. So if we were to, to, to make a shift toward uh, a more uh, comprehensive focus on, on talk therapy, um, psychotherapy in general, um, and let me ask you a super simple question here. <laughs> um, what do you think it is that makes somebody a good therapist? Because if we're going to train an army, that, you know, a new generation of, of, of people who administer talk therapy, what are we looking for in those people? Uh, good people. Uh, the better the person is, the better they are as a therapist. The um, the best predictor of therapy working is a good therapeutic relationship between the therapist and, and the patient. Yep. You can usually tell this within the first few sessions. Mm -hmm. um, if if they, they click, then uh, the treatment usually works. If they don't click, it usually doesn't. Uh, the techniques are very helpful but they don't substitute for a good relationship. So one of the problems we now have in training programs is that they tend to be siloed into, I'm going to become a, a cognitive therapist or a behavioral therapist or a psychodynamic therapist or one or another of the many, many different schools. And really what we need to do is select the very best people and then give them a broad training that gives them a, um, a variety of techniques because different patients need different techniques and the same patient will need different techniques sometimes within one session. So um, I don't think you can ever make a great therapist. The great therapists are born. They're not made. You can make good therapists, better therapists with, with broad based training. Um, you can also make good therapists, worse therapists. If you get them too wedded to one particular, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. So therapists that see everything through, I, you know, everything is trauma related or um, everything is, uh, we need a behavioral approach to every problem, or we need a psychodynamic approach to every problem. The, um, the, the more a therapist slavishly follows one model of therapy, the less good they will be. And so sometimes you can have a person who's naturally a terrific therapist, but gets handicapped by training they take too seriously. Yeah, I actually, I had a professor in grad school who told us that it was unethical to use anything other than CBT when you are working with depression um, or anxiety. And that professor was very different from the next professor that I had, who was very eclectic and used a variety of different interventions from different modalities and taught us how to recognize when those different things may be useful for different people. And I think it's it's tough. People will reach out to me because now I've been working as a therapist for six years and they'll be wanting to find a therapist and ask me for advice. And they're like, I really want to find a therapist who does CBT. And I'm like, okay, but um, the therapeutic relationship is far more important than 
on what the therapist is actually practicing with you. So just keep that in mind. Like, don't be, I need a CBT therapist or I'm not going to get better, you know? Um, So I think it's tough for people to understand that. But um, when it comes to training people, one of the most valuable things for me was videotaping my therapy sessions and bringing them to my class and having my professor watch them while the whole class watched as well and uh, (laughs) playing it and pausing it and kind of pointing out things that I was doing. And then it was helpful to watch other people do that as well. Um, When I meet other therapists today, a lot of them didn't get that training. And it seems strange to me that there's such wide disparities in the ways that therapists are trained these days. And one thing interesting to me is that if you, if you watch really great therapists, sound tape or in person, um, they're a lot more alike than they are different. That the people um, training in one narrow model really don't capture what the the really best therapists in that model do. Like the, the Becks for CBT, uh, Tim and Judy Beck are remarkably empathic therapists. They developed training manuals for research purposes because that's the only way they could get funded. Right. But they don't recommend slavishly following a manual when you're with a patient. They're with the patient. It's always important to be following the patient, not the strict rigors of a manual, not the uh, what the supervisor said last week, because if you just listen to the supervisor, you'll always be a week behind. That we, we do best <laughs> and we learn best when we're with their patients and we do what comes naturally. Therapy is basically maybe the oldest profession. The, the shaman first specialist in, in any um, civilization, in, in any group, any tribal group, going back 50, 100,000 years or longer. The shaman was someone who could relate to people who were having trouble. They would go to him. He'd be the, the, um, the doctor. And uh, they would say what the problem was and he would, bring them into a magic healing circle. He would understand them. He would have some rituals going into the spirit world to negotiate with the spirits that were causing problems. And he would do a healing ritual. Um, Our techniques of psychotherapy now are not so very different than that. And uh, with with some added evidence-based techniques, but basically the relationships that being most important in getting people well. And so what we have to do is recruit people who are naturally empathic, naturally warm, naturally authentic. You can't take someone who's, who's phony or uh, cold or um, lacking in, in, in understanding people well and expect they'll ever be a good therapist, no matter how much training they have. Mm-hmm. You really need to start with good people. That's the most essential. And then the training should make sure they don't get worse and hopefully help them get better by giving them a wider range of responses and greater awareness of what makes people tick and what makes themselves tick. Right. Do you do you have a favorite therapist or psychiatrist or clinician? Oh, many, 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 many uh, going back over the years. But I, I didn't mention the Becks by accident because they are both very special. OK. OK. Um, are there existing trends that you feel like um, you've watched kind of continue throughout your time in the field that you um, think are particularly difficult to change uh, moving forward? Things that that we should be focused on? Well, I think the most obvious thing and the heartbreaking thing, a thing that makes me feel like a complete failure over these years, is that we, we're not getting the patients out of jail. Mm. If you visit the jails, it would break your heart. Um, the patients that lined up cell after cell, often in solitary for 23 hours a day, smearing crap all over the walls. That's the expression. It's the only way they can handle uh, the, the, the boredom and the anger is to smear their, their own crap all over the place. It smells terrible. It's a disgusting kind of atmosphere that they're living in day in and day out. Mm-hmm. We need to get them out of jail. We need to be developing the infrastructure, the ways of getting people not going to jail. The reason why so many people get to jail is that cops have no place else to take them. The cop is the first responder. Patient is howling in the night. Uh, urinating in public or robbing food from the the, uh, 7-Eleven. The cop, the patient's screaming and is obviously psychotic. If the cop takes him to an emergency room, he'll usually be stuck himself there for many hours until the patient's seen and the disposition is made. And the disposition most normally will be that he'll have an appointment, if he's lucky, a month away in the future, which is completely meaningless in a crisis. 
We need to be able to see the person on a regular basis in order to prevent something bad happening in a crisis. So the cops have learned not to even bother taking the patient to the emergency room. We'll skip the middleman, take him to jail. And once in jail, once in that system, the correctional system, once we criminalize mental health, a whole set of, of steps leads to much longer than usual detentions. It leads during the COVID era to a remarkably high rate of death by COVID. So the people with severe mental illness are two or three times more likely to have died from COVID, more likely to be hospitalized because of COVID. Um, all sorts of bad things ha happen once the person gets in the system, the correctional system, and it's almost impossible to get them out. What we need are community centers, countries that do this well. The Nordic countries, the city of Trieste in particular, is the best place in the world to be mentally ill. Countries that do this well don't have a huge population of patients in prisons because they handle the problem in the community. We've regressed to the point where we make people sicker. Our neglect makes people much sicker than they are. We've regressed to the point where we're going to have to work very hard with a combined correctional and psychiatric approach to get people out of prisons. We're going to have to have diversion programs so people don't get into prisons. We need community treatment, which has been killed for the last 40 years. We had the best community treatment in the world until Reagan killed it in the 1980s. We need to stop funding prisons and start funding community mental health centers. And the whole country desperately needs affordable housing. That the, the homeless problem is going to explode in the next couple of months when yeah. the, um, the, the, the rent sort of uh, period of moratorium is, is ended. Mm -hmm. Unless the money gets through, there's going to be an amazing growth of homelessness. All of this is unnecessary. All of this is caused by a society that focuses on private sector solutions to problems that are inherently public problems. Severely mentally ill or a public health problem that can never be solved in a for-profit private system. Right. Well, and I, I know in my work, I have found that social justice and political activism is like an essential part of my job as a therapist. That's that's how I see it. And as I listen to you talk, when you talk about community treatment being killed by Reagan, you're talking about the issue of uh, serious mental mentally ill in, in prisons. Uh, do you view social justice and political activism as an important part, an essential part of uh, people's work in psychology or psychiatry? Well, I have to admit, I was guilty missing in action uh, until about you know, 13 years ago, that I was never someone who was going to be a, a public spokesperson for uh, political positions. I wasn't an activist. I didn't go to rallies. Um, I was a passive, apathetic person, um, selfish person. I think that um, things are so bad now. And first of all, social psychiatry was a very popular model in the 60s and 70s. Social psychiatry was partly killed because the community mental health movement was killed. It was partly killed by DSM and by biological psychiatry, that the fascination with the brain and with medical medication treatments reduced what had been a commitment to treat not only the individual patient, but also the family and the larger community. That the unit of, of attention up until the 80s was not just the individual patient. It was trying to improve the mental health of the community as a whole and uh, uh, looking at the role of the family system in causing problems. NIMH originally had a very um, active social research agenda that got completely um, inundated by the decade of the brain in the 1990s and all the money, almost all the money went to, to brain research. So I think I have to plead guilty to my own sort of um, indifference and apathy until fairly recently. I think that now the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And the, um, <clears throat> the immediate concern of people in mental health should be the, the fact that the severely ill are being so badly neglected. And that that's not just terrible for them, but it makes us a very sick society that we can be comfortable with the mentally ill living on the streets and in prison dungeons, that this is like the Middle Ages. It's barbaric. But it's also going to hell in the handbasket in a larger way. And that's why I wrote the, the second book, uh, Twilight of American Sanity. It, it's insane as a society that we're not facing climate change. The report that came out last week that suggests that if we're not at the tipping point or past it, mm 
we're very close to a tipping point where nature, which is so much more powerful than any technology we will ever develop soon enough to have an impact on it, where nature's about to give us the, the slap in the face and maybe say, you know what, maybe I made a mistake in evolution with, the, with these human creatures. They don't seem to be able to, to make it, and they're, they're fouling their world, destroying um, their, their environment. Their evolution may have made a mistake with us. If we don't take action on climate change soon, there will be existential uh, threats to, to our civilization hundreds of millions, if not billions of people being disrupted, uh, death, destruction, every, every hotspot in the world, every place that has a, a civil war that, that's having terrible natural disasters has had an increase in its population of four to six times in the last uh, 70 years. So there's been this incredible overpopulation of the earth. And now as consumption is going up all around the earth and, and, and our country in the most wasteful way possible, we're, we're reaching the point where we're, we will befoul our environment so it's unlivable. And this is no longer some people just spouting off. This is everyday experience all over the world. Right. The forest fires we're having in the West, they're happening all over Europe. They're happening in the Amazon. The strange uh, weather patterns are not local phenomenon. The ice is melting and unprecedented unprecedented rate in a way that will be uh, setting off a positive amplification feedback system that will result in even more global warming. These are not things you fool around with. Our climate for the last 10,000 years has been most remarkably stable for the last many millions of years. We've lived in the sweet spot of stable climate, which we are now in the process of destroying. I don't think you, as a psychiatrist, I don't think we can look at that and say, it's okay, we'll just stick to the next patient. We won't speak to the fact that the society's acting in a crazy fashion. Similarly, for people not to get vaccinated, not to have their kids vaccinated. Um, I know many people who have immunodeficiency problems. I know kids who have immunodeficiency problems, rheumatoid arthritis and taking medicine that makes them um, not capable of responding to vaccination. If they go to a school where another kid's unmasked and is unvaccinated and they get sick, they will not have the immune um, wherewithal to fight the virus. There's nothing more selfish, more self-destructive than not masking, not getting vaccinated. So I think as mental health professionals, we have to look beyond the individual patient and try to worry about, wonder why the society is so blind to, to self-interest, to simple self-interest. And I'm not sure we can do much about it, but I think we have to feel it's part of our responsibility to try. It's just such an unfortunate thing that we find ourselves here with with the vaccines, you know, the, the, the recalcitrance against uh, science and research and data and advancements in science. Um, the same goes for the climate change question, the problem there. Um, it, it's just super unfortunate that we all these things have kind of converged right in the moment that Donald Trump did what he did to to people's um, trust and and ability to. To, to navigate what is true and what is false. I mean, it's goddamn not great. <laughs> yeah. What I say in the book, and I still believe, is that Trump is more the symptom than the disease. So there has been a concerted effort for the last 50 years on the part of Koch brothers and other greedy billionaires to create a powerful disinformation system, a powerful legal uh, challenge system to um, spread all sorts of lies and anti-democratic uh, government um, initiatives. And Trump is just riding the wave and Fox News, the, the talk radio, all of this has been a, a almost systematic way of, of um, misinforming the public so that most people, uh, many people now are willing to vote for Republicans, even though the Republican Party is the last thing in the world that cares about them. Uh, the last thing in the world that will provide programs for the people who need help, the willing to sacrifice people to COVID uh, in order to get them to vote Republican. The Republican Party has, and, and the people backing it, the greedy billionaires for the last 50 years backing it, have, have succeeded in brainwashing a large part of the American public. And then this was amplified even more by the social networking, QAnon, and all that stuff. The question is, can we, can we recover from this? And I, in the book, and I've hoped that we would by now would have recovered from this because Trump would be out of the picture 
and people would come to see that he had been a fraud. I still have hope. I mean, will the people in Florida, as their kids are getting sick and the schools are all closed and grandma catches um, COVID from the kid who went to school without a mask because of DeSantis, will the people in Florida reelect DeSantis in next year's election, even after the disaster that's about to happen to Florida? Now, again, I'm naive enough to believe that people eventually come to their senses. But so far, uh, I've been proven wrong. Well, let me let me give you a little bit of hope on that front. Um, DeSantis, his margin of uh, his margin of victory was roughly 32,000 votes. And now over 40,000 people have died of covid in in uh, in Florida. So as morbid as it might be, he might be just pricing himself right out of a job based on his policies. More than the point, killing himself at a job. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I think it, it, I, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to see this as a um, a massive manslaughter that he's conducting in yeah. Florida. Yeah, I, I agree. He's much more dangerous than any serial killer could possibly be, um, and yet he's still being talked about as a viable presidential candidate. <laughs> look, look at the difference in California. We have a perfectly capable governor, Gavin Newsom. He's, he's, not, he's okay. He's not, He's a perfectly capable governor. Yeah, not, yeah. Perfect, he's perfectly capable. He may get kicked out of office on a vote of 20% of the population, recall, in a couple of weeks because of the, the powers, the money that will be going into destroying him will be much greater than the efforts to save him. So we have a perfectly competent person who's destroyed by this juggernaut. And this is why I'm, I'm saying it's not just Trump, it's the system. The Trump is the epitome. Trump's a genius. He's a propaganda genius. But it's the whole system that's been working all these years where you can take a perfectly capable of person who has the right values and maybe get him kicked out of office in a liberal state. At the same time, you can have someone who's essentially a mass, I'm not going to say murderer, but mass manslaughterer. And he's still getting, and Abbott's just as bad. And both of them considered uh, viable presidential candidates. There's something about the electorate that's crazy that allows people who are willy nilly killing people. There are about 650,000 people have been killed by COVID so far. If this Delta variant is no joke, if we don't do something radically different with the Delta variant, it's not unlikely that we'll wind up having a total of a million people killed, maybe more. And it's, it's mutating. We give it more and more opportunities to mutate. God knows how much worse it can be. It's bad enough now. And meanwhile, there are 80,000 people at a football game in Los Angeles. Yeah. There are 500,000 people at a, a motorbike rally in, in uh, near Mount Rushmore. And the kids in Florida and Texas are going to be going to school without masks. It's crazy. South Korea just passed a rule that you can't have more than two people together at night after a curfew hour. That's how strict they are. And we're encouraging people to go to school without masks and have have rallies and football games. This is not viable behavior. Our society has gone really kaflui. And unless we and I don't pretend that anything I say or that any mental health worker says will uh, change this momentum because the power and the money to misinform that Tucker Carlson is more powerful in, in, in one stupid performance than all the mental health workers would be if they fought hard for social justice every day of their whole careers. But it's still something I think we have to do. I am uh, honored that you, you accepted our invite to come back on, Dr. Francis. Thank you. Well, no, it's my pleasure. And anytime you want me to do this, I feel it's my job. And it's fun to be with you guys. Um, one last question. Um, and it could be something profound or something dumb or less profound, let's say. <laughs> um, what is the last thing that you changed your mind about? Boy, that's a tough one. I guess the the last important thing I changed my mind about, I changed my mind many times every day. Uh, um, Cain said, I change my views whenever the facts change. What do you do, sir? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's important to be changing our minds all the time. We agree. But the, 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 the last thing was what we discussed before. That it was okay. I used to think it was okay for me to lead my life and just have fun. And if the world had problems, I couldn't solve them because I was just one person. A statistical blip 
in a in an ocean, a drop in the ocean, and it didn't make any sense for me to spend an extra minute doing something useless. I might as well just spend all my time on the beach. And the change in mind was to still want to spend a lot of time on the beach, but to feel that there was some, some responsibility to try to do something different, even though it's almost certain to fail. I think that that is a, a great message to everybody because therein lies how we change society, whether whether it be our uh, the way we're handling or mishandling COVID, whether it be climate change. If everybody took that viewpoint that I'm I'm not just one person, I can influence those around me and they can it's like a giant multi-level marketing scheme if you get three people and then they get three people and then they get three people that's how we take the power back from tucker carlson we just solved this problem i've actually seen it happen my wife spent um something like eight hours a day um both on the biden election even more on the georgia election and with all these efforts most of it frustrating but she felt that maybe somewhere 100 150 people might have voted who wouldn't have voted before yeah um this is after you know a month of intense full-time work but if you had 100 people like her that's the um, margin of the election that's exactly right yeah we we are a big advocates of that we are obviously by evidence by the last question we are also advocates of changing your mind when the facts change or when it, you know, it's your, you were thinking incorrectly as that's, I mean, I'm a former um, nutter butter evangelical Christian Republican Christian nationalist and a long time ago, but I've changed my mind about a whole lot of shit. So. <laughs> and that's what we like to encourage. Absolutely. And, and let's hope that millions of people do what you did because it's going to take that to save mankind. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you again. We appreciate yes. you. You were always a, a fantastic guest. You uh, you didn't give me as much uh, ribbing this time as you usually do. That's a little disappointing, but uh, there's always next time. Yeah, I look forward to it. All righty. All right. Well, thanks. We appreciate your time. It's always great, guys, and keep keep the faith. Right on. All right. Bye, Dr. Bye -bye. Francis. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. I thought that was a really inspiring answer to that final question, which we sometimes forget to ask. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We really want to make it more all the time. And yeah. we're going to start doing a lot more interviews, so it's right. going to be in, in present in our brain. Right. And I love that he, number one, took time to think about it. And then number two, what he said, because it's a great lesson for people who may be afraid or feel certain pressures to not speak out about certain things. Yeah. Um, and the reason that I was curious about his views on social justice is there can be pressure within um, the, the psychiatric psychology community of like therapists are supposed to be kind of like apolitical. Like a blank slate. Yeah. I mean, yes, yes, in a way. In terms of activism or engagement like you're not supposed to be super public you are not supposed to be out there with your beliefs and ideas but it seems I, like a pretty major missed opportunity to, to to better the world if that's the case it does yeah and i i don't think it really aligns with kind of the code of ethics either for the field i mean to really be making people's lives better and working to improve society that happens through political activism and political engagement you're For not sure. doing anyone any favors by being apolitical in fact you're harming people yes. by doing that social justice is justice and if you're not fighting for justice what in the fuck are you doing with your life i mean it needs to be more in the forefront you know i don't want to be all judgy about it but here i go um everybody needs to play a role if we're going to better the world and i'm glad he's He's one of those people who's on our team. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So as you heard, he is quite fiery and quite a character. So definitely follow him on Twitter at Alan Francis MD. And like I said, you can uh, watch him take down Joel Osteen, um, <laughs> Donald Trump. Yeah, for sure. Mitch McConnell. I mean, he's going after everybody on his account, not just psychology and psychiatry related matters. Well, I mean, he gets into trouble. I mean, he, he's a guy who speaks his mind. I remember a couple years ago when he was on with like Brooke Baldwin or he was on CNN and he 
he made some comments about Donald Trump that made, you know, it, it um, consumed the news cycle for at least a day or two. Right. So right. he's he's a big deal. He's a great guy. We're, we're very lucky to have a connection to him. And uh, we're, we're happy that we got to bring this interview to you guys. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did doing it. And uh, we will end by asking for your support. If you enjoy what we do, if we bring you value, we would ask that you go to patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. And for as little as two bucks a month, you can help support our work here advocating for justice, social and otherwise, and uh, having a good time along the way. Anyway, we love you guys. We'll see you next time for Brittany Page. I'm Jesse Dollamore, and this has been I Doubt It.